Welcome to the New Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives every month from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. episode, we look at why the Egyptian government has threatened journalists after they suggested the real number of coronavirus cases in the country may be far higher. Then, we analyze how countries hit hard by the conflict in the region are at particular risk from the global pandemic, especially war-torn Syria and Yemen, and how they are dealing with the virus despite their dire conditions. But it's not all bad news. In the last segment of our episode, we will look at how several countries in the region seem to be containing the outbreak of COVID-19 so far and flattening the curve of the epidemic spread. Egyptian authorities have demanded an apology from The Guardian and The New York Times after their reporters cited a study estimating a higher number of COVID-19 cases than are reported by the state. The government in Cairo also said it would revoke accreditation for Ruth Michelson, the Cairo-based Guardian journalist who used the study in a report, and threatened to close the outlet's Cairo office. The Guardian had earlier published a report citing research by the University of Toronto's infectious disease specialists who suggested that the outbreak in Egypt was far larger than the 200 cases reported by the government at the time. In a lengthy statement, Egypt's State Information Service, which oversees the media sector in the country, claimed the study in question contains incorrect numbers of estimates, claiming the Western journalists were deliberately misleading the public about this issue. At the time, Egypt's official toll of coronavirus cases stood at no more than 200, but the Canadian disease specialists believe Egypt, which is home to more than 100 million people, is likely to be underreporting the cases due to the increasing number of infections among tourists and its reliance on the tourism industry. The repressive regime of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, which is notorious for its crackdowns on free press, warned of tough measures, including jail terms against anyone who spreads so-called false information concerning the virus. On Tuesday, police arrested a Muslim Brotherhood member for allegedly publishing false information about the death toll of the virus. Egypt detained and then released a number of women activists on Wednesday for staging a small-scale protest in the capital calling for the release of prisoners before the coronavirus spreads to detention facilities where tens of thousands are imprisoned. We are currently in front of the cabinet headquarters demanding the state take serious measures regarding the coronavirus crisis in Egyptian prisons. Activist Mona Saif posted a video of herself and the prominent novelist Ahdaf Saif and academic Rabab al-Mahdi in front of the parliament just before they were apprehended by the authorities. Mona and Leila are the relatives of Ala Abdel Fattah, a prominent blogger and activist currently behind bars in Egypt. The women were interrogated on charges of inciting demonstrations, spreading fake news to disturb public order and spread fear, and possession of publications containing fake news. We all know that Egyptian prisons are epicenters of diseases, even in normal situations, with overcrowded cells, poor ventilation, and the lack of sunlight. Dr. Sahar Khamis, Associate Professor of Communication at the University of Maryland, is an expert on Arab media. She spoke to us about how the Egyptian government's violent response to those speaking up about the virus has left Egyptians filled with a dangerous sense of confusion, which could slow the containment of the virus. 
I have relatives and friends in Egypt. One time they hear of the uh, enforcement of a curfew on the whole uh, country. Another time they hear that this information is not accurate or verified. So they are really suffering from uh, contradictory and conflicting reports. Uh, it is no secret there have been a lot of attempts by the Egyptian regime to control narratives. And that has been really a challenge and a problem because you don't want people to be intimidated or scared of sharing their stories or their information. For example, if someone does have a coronavirus infection, uh, there is legal enforcement actions against those who uh, might actually spread information on social media. That could intimidate some people from declaring their illness or talking about their symptoms. That would mean that there could be some people who might be carriers of the virus who are not known. It means people are not going to be aware of the real size of the problem or the real threat posed by this uh, pandemic and they might not just take the necessary precautions uh, against it. She says that social media has augmented the panic surrounding misinformation of coronavirus in Egypt. The spread of the internet and other forms of digital communication and information technology is indeed a double-edged sword. This information overload can cause panic, can cause chaos, can cause fear, but lack of information on the other hand can also lead to panic and fear. If you're talking about a country like Egypt with a very high rate of illiteracy in general and digital illiteracy in particular, added to that, of course, the poor quality of education, poor quality of infrastructure, I fear if you combine all of these factors together, they can indeed be very difficult in terms of uh, providing a situation or an environment that could help for combating or overcoming or dealing with a disaster or a crisis as huge and as threatening as the coronavirus pandemic. At least 97 foreign nationals who visited Egypt since mid-February showed symptoms or tested positive for the coronavirus after returning home from their trip, according to public health data. According to state media, authorities banned mass gatherings last week across the country as part of an effort to slow the spread of the new virus. On Thursday, Egypt also ordered cafes, restaurants, nightclubs and sporting clubs to close between 7 p.m. and 6 a.m. each night. Khamis says that the University of Toronto study needed to be reported in order to push the Egyptian government to take faster and more effective actions to minimize the spread of the virus. The Guardian article also raised an important point, which is the delay in taking certain measures and certain actions by the Egyptian authorities. They, of course, closed down the schools and closed down the universities, which is the correct and the right step to take, but it came uh, late. It should have been taken earlier than that. And most importantly and more seriously, the, the article questioned the uh, inflow of tourists who were coming into Egypt. There were still tourists coming into the country, despite the fact that there were uh, clear you know, coronavirus cases. And of course, when you have foreigners coming from abroad, there is always a high risk that they could bring with them the coronavirus, which is why many countries have suspended the influx of tourists and closing their borders or closing their airports. Only recently, very recently, this step has been taken by the Egyptian authorities' restriction of, uh, you know, flights uh, incoming into Egypt. According to the Committee to Protect Journalists, Egypt has deported numerous journalists in recent years and remains the world's third worst jailer of journalists. Freedom of speech in Egypt during the outbreak of this global pandemic could put even more lives at risk. The last thing the worst humanitarian crisis in the world needs is a pandemic outbreak for which we have no cure. This is why officials across Yemen have stopped international travel and closed schools in the hopes of preventing the spread of the hyper-contagious coronavirus. 
Yemen has not to date announced any cases of the COVID-19 illness. But the poor state of the country's health infrastructure after five years of war would mean that an outbreak could be catastrophic. Yemen's Houthi rebels said last week they would suspend passenger flights in and out of Sana'a airport for a fortnight to prevent the introduction of the virus. The capital's airport has served only rare United Nations and humanitarian flights since 2016, but the Iran-allied insurgents announced the temporary halting of all passenger flights for two weeks, starting on March 14th. Yemen has had over 3 million displaced people, and over a third of the population needs humanitarian aid. So with the closure of its airspace, this vital aid could face problems arriving in the country. Yemen, like Syria and other areas affected by conflict, has an extremely weakened healthcare infrastructure, which has recently been found to have been attacked 120 times by the Saudi-led coalition throughout the conflict. Osama al-Fahri co-offered a report with the Physicians for Human Rights, which paints a dire picture on the destruction of the country's healthcare system. He is the advocacy director of Muatana, a Yemeni human rights group. This report is the most comprehensive analysis of the impact from warring parties' conduct on the Yemeni health system. And it documents uh, 120 attacks on the health sector in Yemen between March 2015 and December 2018. 35 airstrikes, 46 ground attacks, 9 incidents of occupation for uh, military purposes, and 23 incidents of assaults against medical personnel. These attacks have uh, contributed uh, to the uh, virtual collapse of the Yemeni's health system, an outcome that has had devastating impacts on the country's civilian population. He says this report hopes to pressure the international community into keeping accountable those who are selling weapons to the Saudi-led coalition, such as the United Kingdom and the United States. It also holds recommendations on how to assure justice for the victims of this horrid conflict. The report lists recommendations to the warring parties to the conflict and other stakeholders like states providing or selling weapons to the uh, uh, Saudi UAE-led coalition and the Ansar Allah armed group Houthis. And also there are recommendations to the UN uh, Security Council and the UN Human Rights Council. One of the recommendations is to support the group of eminent experts on Yemen to investigate, collect and preserve evidence and clarify responsibility for alleged uh, serious violations and abuses and related crimes, uh, with an aim toward ensuring full accountability for perpetrators and justice for victims. This recommendation is, is highly important because the group of eminent experts is now the only international mechanism that investigates violations in Yemen, and it's important to be supported. In Syria, nine years of war have completely devastated the country. The conflict has forced millions to escape into neighboring nations and has caused millions of others to become internally displaced. Now, in addition to poverty, hunger, and daily terror, Syrians may have another cause for concern, the global pandemic. Syrians are divided into four polities within the state's borders, representing the different factions in the conflict which broke out in 2011 after a wave of pro-democracy protests spread throughout the Middle East. Bashar al-Assad's dictatorial regime, which controls two-thirds of the country, is claiming that Syria is still free of the coronavirus. Many have doubts that this is the case. Dr. Karim Igzayas, research associate at King's College in London, is a specialist in health systems in conflict-affected countries focusing on Syria. 
He says that since Syria is surrounded by states which have counted many cases of the virus, such as Iran, who has some of the highest counts of the region and the world, the regime's claims are preposterous. So the regime, the Minister of Health in Damascus, they were claiming that there is no coronavirus cases in Syria, which cannot be correct. But either the Minister of Health does not have the capacity to detect and identify these cases, or they intentionally uh, do not report these cases, which either way uh, would put population in the regime-held areas under more risk, especially that Syria was open to Iraq, Iran, and all other countries in the region. And you know, Iran was the source of this pandemic in the Middle East. The war has ravaged every aspect of life in Syria, and people have been left without homes, sanitation, and health care. Because now the priority for the Syrian regime is to um, put all their resources into the conflict itself, then uh, they might be uh, you know, less willing to dedicate any more resources to the health sector. In the northwestern part of the country, where the fighting has intensified over the recent months, about half the population lives in camps where there are two or three families that share one tent. So isolation is difficult. Dr. Xayas says these conditions create a fertile environment for the virus to spread. Uh, that more than 50%, 50%, 5-0% of the health facilities in Syria are, um, are damaged, either completely or partially. The Syrian conflict was an example of the severity of uh, destructions of health infrastructure especially in light of attacks on healthcare. There was at least around uh, 600 attacks on health facilities throughout the Syrian conflict. The attack on healthcare was used as, you know, uh, a weapon in the military strategy of the Syrian regime and their allies. So the destruction of health infrastructure in Syria caused you know, a collapse of the health system in some parts of the country. Even in, especially in the recent um, in the recent period with, with the military developments, some some people they do not even uh, find a tent to live in, and a lot of them they live uh, without a shelter in northwest of Syria. So we're talking about massive displacement in the area with lack of basic sanitation, water, and other uh, infrastructure. So yes, this will be making the risk of COVID-19 higher in this area, but also even in the regime held areas, the situation is not that much better. People live in collective centers in terms of crowded camps or you know, even pools or so there are no proper infrastructure to uh, stop the spread of such disease. Dr. Xayas warns that the pandemic spreading across the globe means that the humanitarian aid which Syrians are so reliant upon could diminish due to the global need of assistance. The global health system is struggling to respond to corona anyway. So, you know, even in developed countries, governments and organizations, they are struggling. So I don't think that, you know, humanitarian actors, including international organizations, would have the, the capacity to, to deal with this, with this pandemic. Um, especially that, you know, local systems in conflict-affected countries and in Syria in particular are very weak. However, they have the moral obligation and also the, the mandate to do so. So again, for 
the example of Northwest Syria, the all health actors, all humanitarian health actors led by the, for example, the health cluster, uh, which is led by the World Health Organizations, they should uh, support local initiatives to fight this, this, this pandemic. And actually, they started to do so. The health cluster in Gaza and Tab, they established a task force specifically for this disease. We wanted to end this episode of the New Arab Voice on a hopeful note. While many countries in the region, like Iran and Egypt, are facing a rapid outbreak of the disease, many seem to have successfully kept a lid on the coronavirus. The wealthy Arab Gulf countries, despite being global aviation hubs, have taken a zero-tolerance policy and so far have managed to keep the number of cases and deaths vastly lower by comparison with stringent quarantine measures and restrictions on travel. But it's not just the oil-rich countries who seem to have the situation under control. Morocco, Tunisia and Algeria have also imposed tough restrictions, while countries like Lebanon are being lauded for keeping the epidemic in check despite being hit by a tough economic crisis. While the number of coronavirus cases remains relatively low in the small country, the government since early March has taken drastic lockdown measures, ordering schools, universities, bars and restaurants to be closed, and imposing curfews at public spaces in recent days. According to data from the American University of Beirut, these measures are working in flattening the epidemic's curve. The Global Health Initiative at the university tweeted on Tuesday that the country has been doing much better than others in containing the virus. An accompanying graph shows Lebanon's situation in comparison to several other states, including wealthier European nations such as Switzerland and the United Kingdom. While some voices are saying it's too early to celebrate a victory against the virus in these countries, many others see hope as long as people commit to social distancing measures and do everything they can to protect themselves and the vulnerable in their societies. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was edited by Karim Trabulsi and produced by myself, Gaia Karamazza.